Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Squash podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and today is uh, episode 29. Uh, before we get into the particulars of uh, today's episode, though, I'd just like to uh, congratulate uh, all of the, the finalists of the British Open uh, on the women's side. Uh, Renee El Walili and Nora El Sherbini will play today in about one hour as I record this, and uh, both of them had to had some tough. Uh, matches earlier in the tournament uh, Sherbini uh, had twice to come back from two games to one down and uh, she did it on both occasions uh, so she's uh, uh, I would say f- uh, all fired up for today's uh, final she'll be ready to go she's fit and uh, she's playing well right now she knows she can overcome anything and uh, Renee Melwalili, well, she was too loved, uh, too loved down to uh, to uh, Allison Waters earlier earlier in the tournament, and uh, managed to escape from that uh, deficit, and has gotten through to the final. And uh, wow, I've I've watched uh, uh, I watched her match against um, I believe it was uh, Sarah Jane Perry, and she was she was uh, unbelievable. Uh, I guess the enigma is. Uh, is an apt uh, nickname uh, given to her uh, by the the boys at Squash uh, TV. Uh, I, I believe they gave it to her. But anyways, congratulations to both uh, both of those uh, ladies. And on the men's side, we have uh, unseated Miguel Rodriguez, who uh, came through the tournament. Uh, a lot of people probably expected him to be out in the first round, given uh, his first round match against Rami Ashore, but he took care of Rami. And then took care of business all the way through to the to the final, uh, and he took out the uh, uh, the Cinderella story yesterday in Rafael uh, Candra, you know, three games to one. Uh, Candra, of course, the talk of the tournament, really coming through qualification and uh, uh, almost getting to the final, um, playing extremely well and uh, giving us all uh, something to cheer about. Uh, uh, of course, he was. Um, he had to play uh, Nick Matthew in in round two, and took out Nick uh, in that match. And I'm not sure uh, two people were ve- many people were happy with him, but uh, after that win, but they were certainly after his uh, huge win over uh, Marwan El Shabagi. A lot of people probably wrote him off uh, uh, going into the quarterfinals, but he came through uh, in a big way and played extremely well. Um, but he just couldn't uh, muster up another uh, another one there against Miguel Rodriguez, who seems to be back to his uh, top five form and, and playing extremely well. Uh, and he's up against uh, the best player in the world right now, Mohamed El Sherbagi. Huge, huge win and a great match last night against Gregor Galche, who's been who played extremely well in this event, and he seems to be back in uh, top form as well. So we're in for uh, two great finals today at the British Open. So I'm looking forward to that. In about an hour, uh, we'll be starting uh, those matches uh, as I record this at uh, 5 o'clock Dubai time on uh, Sunday. But uh, today on the In Squash podcast, we have Martin Heath on the podcast. And, uh, well, like a kid in a candy store, like I said uh, in the podcast, it was great to have him on. We had uh, on earlier podcasts John White. We had David Palmer, uh, and now another from that generation of players that I uh, I really enjoyed watching uh, play, uh, Martin Heath. 
Now, of course, uh, many of you may uh, remember him from his squash days. Maybe you don't, but you should go in and uh, watch a few of the matches. They're still up there on YouTube. He has a great, uh, great style of play. I like, I like the way he plays squash. He's uh, on the ball early. His racket's up. He has many options at his disposal when he gets to the front court. And uh, great to watch. And um, if you get the chance, watch his uh, Al-Haram uh, semifinal uh, match against uh, Peter Nickel where he played uh, uh, extremely well and got to the final of that uh, event at the time which was the, the richest event uh, on the tour. Uh, we talk about his career and we talk about his unbelievable um, uh, days as co uh, currently uh, coaching at the University of Rochester and his unbelievable record there uh, with that team and he's produced some quality uh, players, the Stillman uh, uh, trophy winners, which uh, the Stillman Trophy, I believe, is the equivalent to America's uh, Heisman Trophy, which is given to the the best all-around player in football, and the Stillman is given to the best all-around uh, U.S. varsity squash player. Well, he's had a few uh, on his roster recently. We talk about those players. We talk about uh, his new gig as the head of the elite uh, or high-performance uh, squash uh, program for Squash Canada. He was recently hired uh, there in that capacity and he'll be spending uh, some time this summer uh, laying the groundwork for the future uh, of that uh, gig and uh, he just spent uh, a few weeks in Canada at the Canadian Nationals uh, uh, watching uh, the, the elite talent that's there and um, he's excited about uh, this opportunity and uh, we talk a little bit about uh, what he might be able to do and sort of what his vision might be, although uh, he's not, uh, he's just been uh, given the role, so he probably hasn't thought it uh, all out through uh, completely yet. But uh, anyways, we get into all of that, and I really enjoyed chatting to Martin. Uh, great guy and uh, very intelligent fella, and I think he's, he's well on his way to doing good things for Squash, uh, uh, for Squash Canada like he's already done for the uh, University of Rochester Yellow Jackets. So uh, enjoy the podcast today with Martin Heath. This is episode 29. All right, welcome uh, to the In Squash podcast. Uh, today is episode 29, and uh, you know I'm like a kid in a candy store. I grew up in the era of uh, you know the Jonathan Powers, the John Whites, the Peter Nichols, and now we have uh, uh, Martin Heath on the podcast. Uh, Martin, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, let me, I'm uh, just going to go run down your resume here. You spent six years uh, in the world's top 10. You reached a career high of uh, number four in 1999. You're a multiple uh, time winner on the PSA Tour, six time Scottish national champion. Uh, currently, the head coach of the Yellow Jackets of the University of Rochester, uh, and you've been in that capacity for the last 11 years. And and uh, most recently, uh, named the uh, director of the high of high performance uh, for Squash Canada. Yeah, so that's, that's a great resume, Martin. Well, up and down. Well, it's a resume. <laughs> yeah, well, it was. Yeah, well, that was my chosen field, right? So, um, yeah, no, this is the way that life has evolved. So it's actually thirteen years in Rochester. Thirteen uh, so years. I, I, yeah. The researchers. I'll have to have a word with them. No, I'll just, just point it out because it's, uh, yeah, it's a long time. I mean, things, things That's a great, uh, yeah, time flies. I mean, uh, 
you just returned, I guess, uh, from Calgary, uh, Martin, from the Canadian Nationals, and uh, you're, uh, I gather you're back in New York now. So how, is, uh, how are things shaping up uh, for you uh, this summer? Um, well, in terms of Rochester, I mean, and, you know, we've done all our, we've had our season, obviously, and, and the guys are just, well, there's the three seniors graduating this coming weekend. And uh, then the summer, I mean, a lot of the college coaches, they do camps and, and stay busy that way and, and uh, you know, contribute to their, their bottom line by doing that kind of stuff. So I, I like doing the, the high performance stuff. That's where I kind of, that was where I suppose I, uh, I you know, pitched my tent as, a, as, a, as an athlete. And, and so it's nice to be able to give a bit back in that way and to use some of the knowledge that I have. So, so like you say, I'm going to be doing mostly um, uh, high performance stuff with Squash Canada over the summer. Oh, that's uh, with Rochester, it's mostly fundraising and, and some recruiting stuff. And uh, yeah, we're under a lot of pressure to fundraise. My, I went way over budget this year. So. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, the athletic director has been visiting your office, I guess, has he? Sorry, say that again? Your athletic director has been uh, pay, has paid you a few visits, has he? I, well, I think I'm always over budget. I think it's, uh, yeah, the guys are expensive uh, tastes in, in food, I suppose, and, and the... Yeah, so no, it's always always the case, but yeah. uh, it's got more pressure this year. But those just put those just put a good spin on it, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, uh, yeah, so a little bit of that, and mostly mostly working with Squash Canada in and around Toronto, mostly actually. That's great. Uh, I'd like I'm going to talk to you a little bit later about that. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about Squash Canada being Canadian, and you know we went through some really good years, and then it's been a bit quiet lately. So. Um, but there's lots of talent out there, I think. So we, we can talk about that a bit later. But what I'd like to start with is uh, um, your career uh, as you uh, you started your squash in, uh, I guess, in the resort town of uh, Oban, uh, uh, Scotland, and you played your junior squash there. I guess you were obviously an elite uh, junior growing up, but uh, in the shadow of... Uh, a certain Peter Nickel at the time. What were those days uh, uh, like for you, uh, Martin? Uh, your junior squash days in Scotland. Hey, well, I've got to I've got to correct you first. Everywhere oh. I go around the world, everyone knows Oban by the name Oban because they know the Scotch as well, Scotch or whiskey. Yeah, that's O'Ban. how it's I actually, know. It's actually Oban. We you oh. don't pronounce your vowel, many vowels in Scottish, and so it's Oban for anyone listening to it, and they like Oban. the Scotch. It's Oban, that, not Oban. That makes sense <laughs> now. Okay, Oban. Okay. Oban. So, um, yeah, what were those days? <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you, the first, the first time I ever saw Peter, it was, it was actually, I remember it was at the Tayside Open, and my brother was a very good player. He, he kind of excelled before I did and, and became very, very good on, on the Scottish stage very quickly, actually, very talented performer at that time. And so we went along to the Tayside Open. I wasn't really that interested in squash at the time. And I remember seeing this little kid, I mean, an unbelievably tiny, mighty mouse kid who, who was barely bigger than the racket. And he was playing in the under-14s against a guy called Andrew McSherry, whose mum, Elmer, was very involved in squash. And, uh, and, and he was one of these kids. He was just, he was a primitive, you know, he was... Um, yeah, precocious. And he was, he was you know, a 13-year-old that was five foot nine, something like that. And uh, and so Peter was probably under foot at that, and under uh, five foot at that point, and it was just, and they were having this amazing battle. So yeah. everyone was kind of squeezing in and just seeing this kid that was just 
looked like he was five years old and he was almost beating this guy that looked like a man. It was unbelievable. Wow. So that was the first time I saw Peter. And it was obvious from, from that point that he was, he was quite a, a special kid, you know, and, and, he was, and he just had a focus and a determination that was unbelievable. I mean, it just was no one else was really like that. You know, I suppose you see it in lots of different kinds of fields, but in our field, he was the guy. He had that, that kind of Rafa Nadal, this focus and determination. He had it from when he was a young kid. So, so growing up, you know, then, you know, he was kind of, I suppose he was a little bit of a benchmark when I started to become more interested in, in over the next couple of years, more interested in the game and, and wanted to compete against my older brother. Uh, you know, my, my brother was the benchmark initially. And then when I started to beat my brother, then Peter was obviously the benchmark and, and, uh, yeah. and a pretty good one. I mean, obviously. Yeah. yeah, that's a good, that's a good target to have in your sights. That's for sure. Yeah, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't just about results. It was just about the approach that he had. I mean, it was just, it was just very impressive. And, and he was just the focus and the determination he had was, uh, was unusual. And so, so that was always like, a, you know, well, you know, my dad was, he was a physical education teacher. So he was kind of, he understood sports, he understood focus and determination and the difference that that made. And, and so when he, he'd, uh, you know, he definitely benchmarked him. So, look, you know, this kid does it like this and look how successful he is. And, and uh, you know, just very pragmatic as well. And, and so that was, that was at least the early, that was the, my kind of first kind of uh, dealings with, with Piero and with Scottish Squash. And, and we both kind of excelled, I suppose, in some way. I mean, we would be playing, you know, under 14 finals when we were both like 11, 12 years old. I think right. that was kind of what it was. I mean, he was a step ahead, obviously, at that about your dad uh, did he do uh, a lot of the coaching uh, with you at that time uh, no I mean he didn't he didn't really know about the game I mean he oh, had, okay. uh, as a sports guy I mean no one really knew about the game at that point I mean I think that was I mean the game was kind of only only became popular late 70s into the 80s there was a bit of a boom and and I think it was only through it was only through, so both my parents were teachers. It was only through the, the teacher strike that we actually spent a bit of time playing squash. I think that's how we got into it because, okay. you know, in, in Scotland, it rains all the time, right? So, <laughs> so you're always looking for indoor, you know, the rain's okay. You can get outside and do things, but you're always looking for indoor activities as well. So, so that was a kind of natural thing for us to do. So we spent a lot of time doing that. And that, I think that's when we became good at it. But he didn't, he didn't know anything about the game really. No. And, you know, Scottish squash were offering some, uh, some coaching courses now maybe he, I think he did the level one but he didn't really understand the game he just understood sport right you know, which uh, you know and understood what you needed and but we didn't really have a lot of uh, there was there was a guy called Mike Howard that certainly helped my brother out helped me out a little bit I think he identified that my brother had some talent so he helped him out a little bit we used to go to Helensburg and get some coaching so we had some kind of basic grounding but not really not, kind of, not really any kind of formalized coaching, no. I guess uh, maybe the coaching would have come into play maybe uh, once you reached a, like a national uh, junior level and then they, uh, was, was there something in place once you got to that level? Well, I mean, I suppose this is, you know, you're interviewing me as well, you know, rather, you know, the thing that I suppose identifies me over maybe some of the other folks that you might talk to is that, I, I did most of the coaching myself and I suppose that's why I've ended up a coach mm -hmm. is that I kind of, I went through it kind of, you know, a trial by fire kind of thing. It was just trying out lots of different <laughs> things and yeah. I took control of the process myself, I suppose. And that's, so that's what's allowed me to kind of understand the game a little bit from a couple of different perspectives and, 
and then apply it myself and and then you know hopefully you know teach out some of that stuff to other people so so that was there wasn't much coaching around and i i was just one of these people that decided that i wanted to do it myself i just felt as though that was just the kind of kid that i was just kind of stubborn and and just wanted to do it in my own terms and you know, you obviously need to pick up enough information and in how other people are doing things, but it was more through observation rather than, you know, actually going and getting some coaching. So uh, I did have, so when I went to uh, Glasgow Uni, I, there was a guy called Alistair Duncan, who was a very, he was probably the most qualified coach in the whole of Scotland. So I used to pop into, uh, he was the, the recreational, what was he? He was the superintendent of the athletic facility, the Stevenson building in Glasgow Uni. So I used to pop in, obviously I'm training all the time, so I'm popping in there and we just used to have great talks. And, and uh, you know, I really learned a lot from him. Now, not so much in terms of the sport, but just in, in terms of perspective. And, and he was a guy that actually believed in me. I think that was massive as well. I think having someone believe in you is actually huge because I didn't necessarily believe in myself. So yeah. having someone else believe in you just kind of, you know, made you think, okay, well, maybe that is possible, you know? So that was, that was so that was, I suppose, the extent of the coaching that I had. Mm. It wasn't so much technical footwork tactics, any of these kind of things, you know, how to train. Like, I learned all that stuff pretty much by myself. But, so um, so I guess you could to... say you, you took a, an unconventional uh, approach uh, uh, to that. And then uh, you, you turned professional in 94, but it wasn't... Uh, it was sort of a, you took an unconventional avenue towards uh, your pro career by completing your university be, beforehand. So uh, in that way, it was, sort, it was unconventional as well. So what were those years uh, like uh, for you at the University of Glasgow, which you just mentioned, uh, in terms of uh, getting you into professional squash uh, and going forward after that? Um. I mean, it was, it was, I, I treated it more like a training ground for, you know, for a couple of different things, I suppose, mostly a training ground for squash. Squash was the thing that I was, I was better at than anything else. It was also a route to being, to traveling around the world. It was a route to being independent and being master of your own fate, being a professional athlete. And all of that stuff really appealed to me. So I was quite focused. You know, I was, I was you know, once you learn how to use focus then you know you can apply it in lots of different ways so I, I did that in my studies as well you know I'm, I knew how to focus at the right time to get through things and and um, so that was that was the studies were fine but I was really you know very focused on on squash and and structured my day around my training pretty much and so that that was the way it was for me it was more like a training ground and it was hard I mean I was just I was from one of these families that was just like look you have to do this you can do what you want after that but you kind of have to do this get this under your belt and uh, then you can, you know, world's your oyster after that. So it felt like, a, you know, I went there, did, did, did what I needed to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'd be, you know, picking up the newspaper and reading about Peter Nickel and he's, you know, he's starting his professional career. And there was a very quick trajectory for him and he was winning tournaments very quickly. And, and so, you know, I'd be playing for Scotland at that point. And so I'd be, or at least from halfway through there, I was playing for Scotland. And so I'd be going and seeing him and meeting him and, and uh, you know, seeing the wins that he was having. And it was just kind of, I was just itching to get out there. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was yeah, it was, it was pretty focused. You know, it was, it was definitely, you can do it, right? I mean, you can, yeah. you can go to college and you can, you know, have a co-career after. There's nothing to say that you can't do that. You just got to be quite disciplined, that's all. 
Yeah, well, you see it now. Uh, I guess it's a it's a bit different now with the uh, the support and the coaching that's available in the U.S. with the likes of you and Mike uh, Mike Way, Johnny White, uh, other great coaches at the varsity level. But a lot of uh, top pros are coming through the college ranks uh, now. Well, I mean, I think yeah. Well, certainly Amanda and and uh, um, Amanda came through. Who else came through? Alex, Alex Rag. Yeah. They, they were, I mean, they were sort of, they were almost finished, not quite finished product, but they were certainly very good players. I mean, Ali is yeah. a junior, incredible player, and and uh, you know maybe the scoring system has helped you know that trajectory a little bit. It's a little bit more linear, I think now. I think there's you know you had to battle through a few more barriers. You know, certainly physical, mental, tactical barriers. Yeah. The scoring was a bit longer. I think it's you know now it's just like yeah, you're good to get up with good hands. You know, you know how to compete, then then you're good. Uh, so I think, you know, maybe the trajectory can be a little bit quicker because of that these days. Uh, but certainly those guys were you know, excellent players before going to college. But, I mean, that's a good example. Though. I mean, you can you can certainly do it still and go yeah. to a top-class college and have all the demands uh, of, of uh, being a student and, you know, and social demands as well. I mean, you're part of a community and, and you want to enjoy that as well and, and take advantage of it. And uh, so, you know, there's, which is, tends to be the, the thing that can take you away from that. And then also this kind of like golden carrot of, well, you get a Harvard degree, you know, you can always go off and, you know, be very successful in other ways as well. So I think that's, you know, it takes a little bit to be able to kind of bypass that as well. And really, yeah, you know, that, that could probably take the edge off of your, your squat, the squash side of things. If you knew you had, uh, you know, something like Har- a Harvard degree to fall back on. Sure. Sure, I'm sure for some people it does. But if you're if you're a top performer, like certainly Amanda and Ali are, or they were at that time and are now, um, I mean that's you know you're probably going to take that route at least for a while anyway. Todd Harrity did it as well. He he yeah. the Princeton. He he came away. Maybe he's sort of you know he's kind of hit a glass ceiling right now, but uh, you know he'll probably if he wants to he'll break through that. Uh, but there, you know, there's yeah, there's a, quite a few players that have done it and are trying it. So it's mm-hmm. it's great. It's it's. I mean, that's kind of the way it is in tennis, right? You know, yeah. Johnny Mack went to Stanford. I think only stayed a year. James Blake went to Harvard for a couple of years. It's you know, it tend it it can be John Isner. I think he went he went to I remember South Carolina maybe. Yeah. Baylor. I remember which one? But I mean, that's in tennis. You can certainly you know it tends to be a bit of a breeding ground for good pros. Tennis and golf as well. Yeah, golf as well, the NCAA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it'd be nice from a college squash point of view. That's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see. I mean, some people are obviously just going to go pro, but from, from a college squash point of view, it'd be nice to position ourselves to to be well. Look, you know, this is you come here before going pro. You can learn a bunch. You can also get this, you know, contribute to this great experience and benefit from it as well. Then go off, have a pro career, and then you can kind of go off and do, you know. A, whatever other amazing things you're going to do in your life. I guess the only thing missing there is, uh, you know, the fact that the squash pro career isn't quite as lucrative as those other sports that we mentioned. <laughs> I mean, certainly it's, it seems to have gotten better. I yeah. mean, I think, you know, you certainly got to look at what Alex Goff and Lee Beachel have done over and, you know, and people, people, you know, you can't just see it's those two guys. It's obviously people on the board and, and lots of other people that are helping out in different ways, but, the whole, the whole kind of um, circus seems to have been refined a little bit more, and it's positioned a little bit better, I think. And so there's more money around for the, for the top players. So it's a little bit easier decision to make now. Uh, there's obviously yeah. a couple of other major strategic things that could be 
could be very helpful, which would certainly help the sport. And uh, whether, you know, how that's going to evolve, I don't know. But uh, certainly those guys have done a great job. So, um, but, you know, you're never going to be, you know, a multi-millionaire. I mean, maybe just a few guys that have done very well at the sport, but it's, you know, they're few and far between. But um, in terms of making the decision, certainly, you know, it's an investment initially, investment yeah. time, money. And perhaps just for the love of the game as well. And that's it. You want that to be the major motivation though, right? I mean, you want yeah. that to be the thing that, that is the initial kind of impetus to, to make that decision. Is it you love it? You want to try your hand at it. You put so much time and energy and, and effort and love or whatever other adjective you'd use into the game. And you want that to kind of be the thing that comes out. It's not just a bottom line financial decision. Well, uh, you made that decision. Uh, you turned pro in 94, Martin. Is that, uh, I think I'm right there. And you, you, Basically, four years later, you, you hit the big time uh, in 98, uh, in particular, uh, the Al-Haram Open when you beat uh, Peter Nickel. And uh, apparently, that was the first time you'd ever beaten him. And not only that, it was the, uh, the richest event on the tour at the time. Uh, now, I, re I remember that match. Uh, I, uh, it was on Star Sports. I was in, uh, I was in Seoul at the time, uh, and I watched it. on. Uh, I think... Um, not sure if it was Jonah Barrington commentating or um, someone else, but anyways, your your reaction at the end of the match said it all. Really, uh, what did that win over Peter mean to you at that time? I mean, obviously, it was huge. It was. I mean, I had beaten them as a junior. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the first time, but certainly as a pro, it was. And uh, and he was world number one, and and so it was. I mean, that's a huge result. It'd be, you know, beating the world number one, you know, on the glass court by the pyramids in this setting, which is, you know, in squash is, you know, at least certainly at that point, was pretty big sport in Egypt, but it still is. And, uh, you know, the biggest money tournament in the world. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, one of these kind of, you know, things that you'd, uh, you know, you'd, you'd script, but, you know, it doesn't yeah. really really happen. So, yeah, I mean, I was a good player. I mean, I wasn't a finished article at that point by any means. And, and, but I was Don't good, sell yourself short, mate. You were very good. Well, I'd had a bit of success before that. I'd, you know, I'd won the Singapore Open a couple of times. I'd threatened the top 10 for a few years, but it just you know, didn't have the consistency or my body was just kind of, you know, just, I was just still learning, basically. Yeah. But I was obviously pretty good at times. I had a bunch of top 10 wins. And, and I think what happened, I think I got close to the top 10, then I dropped down. And I think, so that, that tournament actually propelled me from outside the top 20, inside the top 10. I think, I don't think it was, I think it's only myself and Bill Harris, maybe that certainly on the men's side that I've, that I've done that. I don't know whether anyone since then has done it. Yeah, I think that got you to number seven, didn't it? I can't, I mean, I can't remember, but I think yeah. it was probably something about like that. Yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, the big points, right? So it was a lot of points at that point. Um, so I think it was based on the amount of money as well. It wasn't tiered at that point either. So it was huge. I mean, it just made such a big difference to my career. But, you know, and it kind of gave me uh, that springboard. And it was, you know, I remember at the time that some of the guys were like, all right, well, let's see how far you drop next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I managed to hold it. You know, I kind of... You know, I was ready. I was ready to kind of make that move. I was ready to be, you know, a top 10 player fighting for things. You know, I, I, I also was, you know, critical of my own game and I knew what I needed to improve and, yeah. you know, to get proper form. I didn't just want to be a guy that, you know, could, you know, get the odd result here and there. I wanted to be a, a top contender. So that was, so it gave me a springboard for that. So it was great. And it, and it sustained itself at least for a while anyway. Well, from 19, uh, from that point on, uh, even up right up until you retired, you had some great wins, including uh, semifinal 
appearance at the 99 World Open Tournament of Champions in 2000, where you beat Peter uh, again in the semi. Uh, was it? Uh, you just alluded to that earlier. Uh, the the Alaram uh, result in 98 uh, gave you the impetus to uh, to tell yourself that you were truly a top five uh, player. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, you, number one, you know it's possible, right? I mean, that's, that's the first thing. You know, you're, you know, as a pro, you're never satisfied. I mean, you're, you're kind of always looking for, for things that you can improve. And so I'd, I'd see myself and be like, okay, well, you know, I can obviously improve in a bunch of different things. And, and obviously, you're looking at the players around you as well because, you know, your game, I mean, one of the things of being the top pro is that you, you want your A game or whatever you call it, your best game to beat anyone else on your given day, right? But, yeah. but you come up against opponents that you just, that, you know, you really struggle with. That even if you play your best, it's, it's, with the way the styles match up, it's not going to work. So, so there is that kind of, you have to cross that bridge as well. If you want to be world champion, world number one, then you have to cross that bridge. And so, so that was, that was a, a challenge as well. But I, I, had, I was one of those players that I could beat the top players, you know, fairly regularly. I think my results against the top 10 players, my results against all the guys around me that got to number one were also very good. I think I've got a winning record against most of those guys that I played and an extremely imbalanced record against a few of the guys. <laughs> well, I was just, I was just going to say, like stylistically, I, I watched, re revisited a few of your matches uh, today in preparation for this, and I watched a couple against Peter, and it really looked like you sort of had the game that would give him a bit of trouble. Uh, but uh, who were the guys that, uh, that you really had trouble with uh, frequently? I mean, the easy, easy one is obviously Jonathan Powell. I mean, I found him the hardest guy to play because, really? you know, I was, I like playing my, because my movement was very good and I, I kind of had a bit of flow and I saw the, I saw the ball fairly early and, you know, and I, over a period of time, certainly I adjusted my racket work so I could be very reactive and still quite controlled. So I like playing this kind of a little bit more fluid type of game where I'd move the ball around, attack, kind of or at least gambit, and then, you know, reading the game and then counter-attack and then keep that flow going. I enjoyed that style of game. I could play up and down the wall in basic, and that's kind of how I learned the game, but I developed this other game that was yeah. quite successful. And, and so but then I'd apply it to Jonathan, and, you know, just <laughs> nothing. So just, it was, it was, I was totally nullified, and just because of his position and his deception. And, and, so, and he was basically better at that game than I was as well. So... Yeah. It was more accurate and his volleys were better and so that was that was challenging you know that was and so i spent a lot of time trying to figure that little challenge out you know yeah. was that was that more uh, uh maybe a mental uh thing i was talking to uh, i had uh um david palmer on the podcast recently and he was saying how uh once he got on the court with him and, and beat him for the first time he felt that he could impose his game but prior to that he always felt, I guess, like you were saying, it was like impossible. Right. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, if you feel as though you're, you know, you've got this mental block and you feel, you know, you'll have quite a few losses against someone, you, you feel like you're, you can, you know, overcome it. I mean, you know, as a, as a pro athlete, I mean, I'm assuming any, any competitive endeavor is that, you know, that's hard. It's hard to break through that kind of, you know, that barrier. And but yeah. when you do it, then you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, you can do it. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's the story of progress in general, right? And that's kind of, you know, anyone that's, you know, whatever, 100, 150 in the world, and it seems impossible to, to so many players in the way. It's like, 
yeah, you, the, it's this process of just kind of feeling as though it's really hard and then breaking through. And it's like, oh, okay, it's not that hard. This is actually what you need to do. And so, I mean, that was, and it gets harder as you get closer to the top, right? Because it's so competitive and, and the athletes are so good. And, but that, that was, you know, I, I crossed that bridge with Peter, I suppose. I mean, he was a big yeah. mental block for me. But, you know, I don't think it was mental, actually, with power. I don't think, I think, I'd, I mean, it might be. Maybe if, if I broke through a little bit earlier, it might have been, you know, maybe changed a little bit. But I think it was felt more technical. It felt, though, it felt as though I just had to kind of adjust my game and be better at certain things to, to beat them. Yeah, I... Um, I I remember uh, listening to a few of your broadcasts on, uh, I think it might have been TSN, the, the Canadian Sports Network, and you were with uh, the legend uh, Vic Router there. And uh, <laughs> uh, he, he always sounded like he, he kind of tried to know a little bit about the game anyways. Yeah, yeah, no, Vic, yeah, he's, he's still a friend. I mean, I still keep in touch with him. He, yeah, I think he's, he's pretty much retired living up in the Yeah. Oh yeah, he's yeah. Big he's big into uh, the curling as well. He he did his curling commentary. He was quite good at. I know. He's, he's, yeah, he was the he was that kind of yeah very professional. Yeah, yeah very, very funny guy as well. Really a lot fun to work. He had with. a great voice too. Yeah, he did. I mean, he made a great career. He did F one, did uh, tennis, did Olympics. I mean, he was you know incredible, incredible, incredible career. But what, um, I, what I was going to say was. Um, uh, were your were your experiences on court with JP with, with those experiences? Would you describe uh, his game and his personality as sort of something that had maybe never been seen before in squash till then? Oh, that's a good question. Um, no, nah, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of characters. I mean, obviously it started off small and kind of grew, but there's a lot of characters around squash. You know, because it's such an international sport and because it versus I suppose originally a colonial sport right so you know the colonial countries played but it's expanded from there so there's a lot of different temperaments a lot of yeah. different ways of playing the game that you see which is cool I mean it's very cool that our sport has that uh, I think it's one of its assets actually yeah I, agree. Uh, I mean his is I mean the thing about JP is I, I remember seeing him in way back in the US Open when he was whatever he was nowhere in the world and uh, his and one thing I noticed was his his strength of position and his easy, how low he got to the ball, how strong he was, this kind of perfect low center of gravity and how fluid he was with his movement and this perfect position that allowed him so many different options is that, you know, he had that way more than, you know, even the top 10 players had as far as I was concerned. And he was, you know, 80, 90, 100, 150, whatever he was in the world at that time. Yeah. And he obviously had this ridiculous talent and he was a kind of, you know, he was, yeah, I think he just kind of grew up on court. And so, I mean, he had certain things that other people didn't have. I and mean, he's known as this shot maker guy that, um, you know, in deception, which he was up to a point. He wasn't like an outright shot maker, but in terms of his options and his ability to control the court and control the ball, I mean, that was obviously very impressive. Uh, but it was, it was his position and how he controlled the court. That was, that was what got him the success. And the other thing, if you're talking about what's different, is that he was, and he may disagree, if you get him on a podcast, he may disagree with this. <laughs> as far as I can see, he was motivated by fear. It was just, he, he, he just couldn't lose. There's such a massive uh, uh, revulsion to the thought of losing. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, fear is a greater motivator than, you know, just loving winning or wanting to win or something like that. And, and I think that's something that, 
Peter Nichol had, I think is I think Rodney Isles. He was around my he was a little bit older, but yeah. you know, I was oh, he was he was me. tough, that guy, man. Rodney but none, of, none of these guys could stomach the thought of losing. You yeah. know, it was just the the thought of losing was just was anathema to, to their whole being. And that was the difference between you look at those kind of guys. I mean maybe Rod a little bit different. Uh, Peter and Peter and Power, I think were sorry Rod, but I think they were or just at a level above. Um, yeah. You know, you look at those guys and, and just, yeah, they just couldn't lose. I mean, that was that was it. Something, the earth had to open and, you know, something unusual had to happen for them to lose. And that was the attitude that they went on with. And so you look at, you know, they, that kind of chasing pack, uh, you know, and I was one of those guys. Is that maybe so, we didn't have that, not as much as those guys. So, so did, you, uh, did you ever have success against Jonathan? Uh, in a Legends event. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, still. <laughs> So I think he is the only guy that uh, I played maybe more than once. I mean, you may have won off losses here and there, but it's the only guy that I played certainly, you know, more than once or twice where uh, that where I didn't beat I didn't beat the opponent. So right. that was kind of a little bit. I remember I told him one time, and he was just kind of like, it was, I think he was surprised, and then also kind of like, oh, okay, huh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was so he so for that reason that was he, he was the hardest guy to me. Yeah, and and I played him enough times. I played him enough times to kind of have a run have a run at it. But yeah, um, yeah, and, and I drew him a lot actually. I drew him enough. So maybe if I'd had deeper, you I mean you were obviously go, going deep into a lot of tournaments, so you were bound to run into him, Peter, or any of those guys at some point. So I mean that's right. And against those two guys, it was just it was for different reasons. I had uh, you know terrible. Terrible head-to-heads. Ahmed Barada, I found very tough. Actually, he was, yeah. uh, you know, certainly when he wanted it, you know, he was one of those, you know, those players. I think Jonathan, you put in that in that uh, category as well. Is that you play, you you know, you have one point to play for your mother's life or something like that. You would choose those guys. I mean, just oh, yeah. they would run to the brick wall. They do whatever they needed to do to get to win that point when yeah. they needed. For Barada, um, uh, I think. Uh, in, in that kind of situation that you describe, if the match were played in Egypt, you'd go with him. I mean, he was he was unbelievably hard to beat, just in terms of how he competed, uh, you know, how he controlled the core. I mean, obviously, there's been better players around, and uh, yeah. but in terms of how his his competitive ability and and you know when he wanted to win, it was just it was you know, like you know it was incredibly hard. Um, you know, so Peter had a very good record against him. I know he really struggled against Peter, but he also got his wins as well and. And so that's hard to do. It's not an easy thing to do to beat those guys. So, uh, and he managed that. In Egypt, I don't think he was quite the force outside of Egypt, but certainly he was one of the hardest guys to play when he wanted it in his, in his home country. Yeah. Well, I digress a bit here. Um, I, I, I want to get back to talking about you. Now, you, um, you retired in 2004, um, I think maybe perhaps a little bit earlier than some of your peers. Uh, what led you to re- retirement and uh, what did you have in mind at that time uh, post-squash? Oh, okay. Let me think back. Um, <laughs> so I, was, I suppose I was a little bit later because I went to study. I was a little bit later starting. And also because of the way that I approached the game. I was, you know, the first few years I was learning. I was, just, I was going to school again. I was just learning. I was watching, you know, I was watching Gantra Khan practice like all the time and, and uh, watching the top players and copying them and seeing what they did and trying out different things. So that, you know, I, I kind of went to school for the first few years. So yeah. so I, the number of years that I had where I was actually, you know, so-called, you know, fulfilling my potential, let's say, uh, well, I suppose it was fairly small. 
and then at a certain point, I think I reached this level where it was like, okay, I wasn't really, I wasn't, my trajectory wasn't obviously upwards. And it became a career. All the kind of the fun stuff that you're doing where you're rising up the rankings, you're traveling around the world, you can treat them really nicely. You've got this kind of feeling of progression. Uh, you know, then when, it's, when it became this career, I realized that it wasn't actually as good of a career as, you know, as I'd want. You know, in, in terms of, you know, and I had to, it's one of these ones where it had to end as well, right? You know, you right. can forever. So if it was, if it was a better career, uh, then I probably would have kept it going. I mean, you see the guys that are around, you know, 50 in the world and the ATP circuit and they're making great living and yeah, yeah. Still, they're doing. And, and uh, so, you know, maybe I would have kept it going a little bit longer, but it just wasn't, it didn't, it didn't feel like a viable career. It felt like, all the other things that I was being exposed to at that time, you know, I was doing a bit of TV work and you know, I was spending a bit more time in, in the, you know, I, was, I think it was mostly based out of Toronto at that time in terms of a training base. And, you know, and then and through, through all the, the squash career, you're meeting a bunch of different people, I suppose mostly business people. And so you're seeing the kind of other kind of life that you can have. And, you know, rather than just kind of, you know, riding on the coattails of these people, it's like, well, okay, it'd be nice to kind of, be involved in other things and and uh, so that you know things are pulling you away i also yeah. met a woman in toronto and and you know with a more settled life and, you know so all these things tend to happen i suppose they tend to happen at a certain points as well you know so certainly for me they all happened at that time you know 2002 2003 that kind of time so so it felt pretty natural and uh, but i also knew that um that um, I probably was going to study. I needed, you know, you can get an opportunity, you can get your foot in the door, and maybe I had that opportunity through knowing quite a few people and knew a few people in finance and New York and some you know, pretty big hitters as well. And, and, but, you know, you get your foot in the door, but then you have to prove it. Whatever you go into, you're going to have to prove it. There's only yeah. so much you get away with. And, and so I felt as though my grounding, my, you know, I'd been a pro athlete for you know, however many years at that point and, you know, traveling around the world, being my own boss, kind of, you know, doing what I wanted to do in any given day. Uh, and so to go from that to put on a shirt and tie and then, you know, be, be you know, the lackey of someone else, it just it felt like too hard a transition for me. So even if it was a very nice opportunity. So, so I, w- I wanted to go and study a little bit more. And so I could still be, I could either get trained further, I could get used to a more normal, settled life. And uh, and then I could be a little bit more of a master of my own fate, the same as I was with uh, with my squash career. So uh, so that's what I did. So the the college squash uh, opportunity. My brother was coaching at Dartmouth at that time, so I'd go along right. and see him coach. And I mean, number one, I just thought it was the coolest job in the world. You was he to, coaching with uh, John Power? That's right. Yeah, yeah, he was coaching with John Power at that time. And so when I was still pro, I'd be passing through Hanover in New Hampshire and. You know, I'd be helping out with the team occasionally. I'd be staying with him and training a little bit. And and, uh, and I just saw how much fun that he had with it. And, you know, it's a serious job. It's not just a fun job. Oh, no, yeah. You're, you can, you've got a lot of influence over, you see a lot of influence, but you do have the ability to be able to influence uh, young people at a fairly crucial time in their life. And uh, and I like that idea. And, uh, and also at the same time, uh, I've, when the opportunity came up with Rochester, I could also study pretty much for free uh, right. to, to, you know, kind of pave the way for that next step in your life kind of thing. So, so that was, and also about 10 years previous to that, or, you know, I'd been approached 
a, to do something like that, to, to be the assistant coach, I think it was at Amherst at that time, and, okay. then, and then to, you know, you had the ability to do a master's degree at UMass. And so, and that- So that, that basically uh, planted the seed then? Planted the seed. I also, I also thought, so I, I cut my degree short in Scotland. You had the opportunity of doing an honors year or just cutting it short, just the kind of basic degree. Uh, so I thought, well, there's no point in doing the honors year because I'm going to go back and do a master's at some point anyway. So what's the right. point in this, this silly year? So let's get my degree. Let's get out there. Let's try and be a pro sport player. And, and so that's what I did. So I, I kind of, I always knew I was going to go back and get educated in, in something a little bit more. Uh, so all of these things tied together nicely, and, and uh, so when and I so I looked around at a couple of college jobs uh, before Rochester came up, and uh, so yeah, uh, so yeah, if I can continue in this vein, I suppose what happened was that I I told my brother to go for the job at Rochester. Uh, okay. He got the job, and I thought, well, look, you know, this is perfect. You know, I'm probably going to end up in Toronto. And naturally, you're going to be in Rochester. It's less than three hours away. We can see each other a lot. We can do camps together. And, you know, life will be rosy. And, yeah. and so he went and got the job. And, uh, and he had a few different options at that time. I think he, he had the option of going back to Liechtenstein. He had the option of selling washing machines in China. Yeah. He was a linguist when I mean, he wasn't a salesperson. The China opportunity is huge. Well, yeah, and he wasn't—he wasn't business minded either. It wasn't bottom line. Didn't really, he didn't, it didn't, it wasn't really what motivated him. So, uh, so he had a couple of these nice, nice uh, things for him, and uh, he got the job at Rochester, and and he ended up not taking it. And so I was like, ah, oh, I was tearing my hair. I was saying, look, I would, if I knew you weren't going to take take that, I would have applied for it. I didn't want to go against you. So, <laughs> yeah. as soon as he turned it down, I picked up the phone and I talked to talked to the right people and and uh, got an interview the next day. And I think it was pretty much off. Well, that's the rest is history and that was it and i think i took it the same day as well <laughs> maybe maybe i thought about it for a day but i knew i was going to take it this seemed like the right like for a lot of different reasons it was the right opportunity and, and time has proven that it's been the right right situation for me so you've you've been there as you uh, you corrected me earlier not 11 but 13 years um your first two years were obviously a bit of a learning curve for you. Uh, uh, the team had had a losing record in the first year, and then from then on, it's been it's been great. Um, what were what was that first year like for you and uh, and the Yellow Jackets? Uh, 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 lately, they've made great strides. What did you learn during those first few years that uh, that have that's led to the impressive record that uh, you've accumulated till now? I mean, just. You know, you start off as a, you know, you think it's about coaching and mentoring, which it is in some regard, and, and mentoring, I suppose, in a larger regard. But in terms of the success of the, the team, I mean, that is in, in college level, it comes down to recruiting. And so identifying the, that fact, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of an obvious thing now, but um, I mean, basically identifying the fact that there's only so much difference that you can make throughout the college year. Uh, right. in someone's game and also the mentality that you have uh, these you can affect their fitness you can affect their strategy you know their teamwork or you know how they handle pressure and things like that very difficult to you know very difficult to affect technique and and uh, and movement like movement technique and racket technique it's very difficult to affect that it takes a certain kind of mentality that's why summers are really good for that because you can try out different things with, you know take the pressure off you're not totally focused on achieving a goal they can yeah. just try different things. So in college, that tends not to happen. So 
So I think the first couple of years, it was just learning about those things. Just, okay, what, what, where can I make, us, make the greatest difference uh, in the most efficient way possible? Uh, and, you know, just because, you know, it's not necessarily the, the uh, you know, maybe you might know about the division system in, in NCAA in, in college sports, but, you know, a division three school, which doesn't mean it's any worse than division one, right. uh, but it's really, it's about the process. It's about, it's an educational mission and it's really about uh, competition is there to, to practice all these things like teamwork and leadership and how to handle yourself under pressure and, and uh, you know, and it's not, it's about the competition. It's not necessarily about winning. It's more about how you handle it. Right. So that, that's really, you know, you're kind of trying to match this thing up. Okay, well, I'm, you know, this competitive guy that's been, you know, that has naturally, you know, you know, whatever I do, I seem to be bringing that kind of competitiveness to that. Uh, you know, I'm also a problem solver. And so identifying where to make the biggest differences you know, for the least amount of effort, that's, that was, you know, so you bring these things into this world where, you know, that's not necessarily what they're looking for. And then, um, uh, yeah, just, you know, that, that's kind of, that's how we became successful as was just identifying certain things and then just leveraging, you know, what, what needs to happen to do that. And then you realize, oh, actually, they do want to be successful. <laughs> not, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. you, can't, you can't design it, you know, and that obviously, some colleges do that. They make a strategic decision to uh, that this is the sport they want to focus on, maybe less competitive and easier to achieve a higher level than maybe basketball or football or something else. Um, now, obviously, uh, as you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, recruiting is a, uh, a big element to this. And uh, uh, Mike Way, who was on the podcast, he, as you know, he's an outside-the-box kind of guy, kind of thinker. And uh, he mentioned uh, in terms of recruiting that one of the things that he looks for when he's out recruiting is not necessarily the best player, or not necessarily the, the best guy, but uh, he also he looks for uh, squash burnout and as something that he's kind of he's aware of or wants to be wary of. Um, what do you uh, look for when in, in terms of uh, recruiting a good good class for that year, any particular year? Well, the first thing is that we don't really have the luxury of choice that Harvard have. Obviously, yeah, yeah. You know, everyone wants to go to Harvard, you know, just the reputation, you know, the access, the contact base, whatever that brand communicates to people. Uh, I think in terms of education level, you know, all, pretty much all the colleges that play college sports, it's not that much of a difference um, right. in terms of actual education level, in terms of other things, you know, branding certainly. So, so that naturally plays a part. So Mike has got a lot of, choice there you know maybe restricted a little bit by you know academic levels and, and admission uh, but there's a lot of choice so we we don't have quite as much choice that's the landscape that's the atmosphere we're right we're, uh, after so after that um then certainly yeah i mean what do i look for you, you want good people you want people yeah. that are going to be um they're going to mix well with with the team uh, but you know the team culture is also you know, that's movable as well. That's at least that's the way that I look at it. You know, when I came into college squash and, and I'm like, okay, I'm this Scottish guy that's coming in here. I didn't want to just completely stamp my authority and, and sort of set a culture right from the start. Uh, I did see the frat culture that was quite apparent when I first came in. Uh, I didn't think that was, that was particularly healthy. Right. Uh, I, thought, I thought there were other benefits to it that weren't necessarily... 
benefits to the squash team. And so I didn't want to kind of obliterate it from the team, but I wanted to minimize its, its, the culture it had on the team. And uh, so, so that I kind of I did that, and and I think that worked. I think that kind of helped. So you don't. So I didn't. I don't really kind of. I don't want to. I didn't want to purposely recruit people that would expect this or want this kind of atmosphere, that kind of track culture. Um, I think the other thing was that I I I wanted a, a diverse team in every way you can possibly think. Um, you know, and so that just because that was my experience, and and I thought. That was that was one of the nice things about what I got out of the PSA career was was just meeting all these different kinds of people with different perspectives and and uh, different ways of doing things, different ways of playing the game. And and I thought, well, that's kind of nice to create that little microcosm, you know, in Rochester, New York. To, and so that was you know that was a little bit by design. Uh, and I think that was you know you know not that you're not that you're purposely recruiting. You know, visible minorities or something like that. But just if anyone exists, it wasn't. I wanted the people to be themselves. Yeah, uh, yeah. And to fit in. Make it more more of an organic uh, approach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was so that that was kind of. And as long as there were good people and and kind of you know open minded and and uh, you know, they wanted to work hard and and uh, you know I, th- I think that was kind of you know what what I you know they had to be excited by it. You know, someone that was like, oh, God, you know, I didn't get into Harvard, so maybe as well come here. Like, that wasn't really the attitude that I was looking for. It was right. more like, I see this as an opportunity. I'd love to come here. You know, this is unusual. At the time, I was, you know, I know there's been, you know, you know, players, PSA players in the past, like, quite a long ago, but I don't think there's been anyone that had an obviously, you know, high-ranking professional career that had come in, at least singles career, um, you know, had come into college sports in that way. So I think it was quite unusual at the start. Uh, so I think that kind of maybe attracted some of the players to come, and so they thought it was cool. Well, so you're, I, I like, mean, you're you're now coaching the team uh, for 13 years, and obviously the success that you've had is uh, is well documented. That that's obviously uh, going to help with recruiting as well, with your name and the success the team's had. If if you've got a uh, a young guy who really enjoys a squash and loves squash, he's going to look at that situation and say, "Hmm, uh, that's a that's a an option as well as a, as Harvard." Yeah, I, th- I mean, you know, maybe I don't think so. I mean, to, to be honest with you, that um, the decision to go to to college is like that's that's a I think that's pretty low down the totem pole on on where on the on the decision matrix or whatever you call it. I mean, it's. Is that they're they're pretty much going to the best college possible most, and they right. make you know financial how the how the finances work out, um, and then kind of other stuff will happen after that. How they fit into the team, and you know I think that's kind of usually how it goes. So, right. so in an ideal world, yes, you'd want people to be very excited, and motivated, and make their decision based upon the sports team and the college. But I don't think it really happens that way. Right. All things being equal, yeah, then then it makes a difference. Do uh, I mean Rochester? I think they they have a very strong basketball program, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the their their college basketball team is quite strong. Have you uh, 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 picked the brains of other coaches on other teams in terms of uh, recruiting, or is that squash recruiting and their recruiting kind of separate? Uh, yeah, there is. There's not. I mean, there is a bit. Of, there's a mentorship program that the soccer coach just started with the, with the coaches actually, and so. Uh, so that's an official thing that happens now. But the, yeah, you'd, you'd kind of, you know, obviously you pick the brains of other coaches and see how the way that they do. I mean, some of the, the soccer coach, women's soccer coach recruits 
two years out. I mean, so, you know, and, you know, gets kind of verbal agreements and, and things like this. So it's, it's kind okay. of, um, yeah, I mean, it's, everyone's got their own way of doing it. How, how early they do that, that was the biggest surprise. Uh, but every environment is very different. You know, I think for, for me initially, it was a numbers game. It was just kind of like, you know, casting a wide net and see what happens. You know, <laughs> now it's obviously, you know where you stand. You know how people perceive the program. You know who's likely to come and who's not. So you don't want to really, you know, waste too much of your time on people that are just obviously just not going to come. So, right. so it's a lot more targeted now. You know, you're looking at a certain number of, you know, a certain number of players that fit into that, you know, academic band that, you know, they want to come, they're, they're, they're excited by it. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of, and they fit in well to the, to the team. They maybe meet with the team and they like it, they're, you know, so, so I think that's kind of, you know, every team has their own kind of unique way of recruiting. And, and so for us, you know, we kind of, you know, there's not too much crossover with basketball, I don't think. You know? right. and, and also mostly American. They're not, you know, it's mostly American. We're relatively international. And so, right. you know, you're, and the you know the basketball basketball team will recruit mostly from New York State, you know maybe a couple of states outside, and you know they're all going to be fairly you know you know they're all going to be fairly um, uniform kind of kind of right. people as well. In well, in terms of uh, I guess in terms of recruiting though, you can't really complain because you've you've had uh, several All American uh, status players, so uh, including in 2017, Ryose Kobayashi, who won the Skillman Award, which is uh, I guess akin to uh, the Heisman Trophy of squash. Uh, uh, did you know Kobayashi had uh, had that type of I guess Skillman talent, and uh, what was he like uh, to coach over the years for you? Uh, I mean, he was, I mean, incredibly talented kid. I mean, oh my God. I mean, just the, the way that he played the game, he had that kind of, he had that flow of, uh, and reading of the game that the top pros have. You know, yeah. he didn't maybe have the physical, you know, stamina and the strength and, and all these kind of things. But in terms of his, like, certain other talents, I mean, yeah, he, was, he, was, he had some top pro uh, level talents. And, and so he was, I mean, he was a lot of fun to have in the team and, and everyone, all the other players and other teams and all the other coaches, they just love watching him play. Uh, so, he, I mean, he was a big asset to college squash, actually, and how he approached it. And, you know, it was this little guy with big yeah. personality and a lot of confidence. And he did great. He had a dynamic. I watched a bit of him play a, a bit of his one of his matches today. Very dynamic uh, style. He liked to attack and he hit, likes to hit the ball hard. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think he also he also understood that there's only you know there's a limited amount of you know uh, improvement that you can make in the in the college environment, and so you know he didn't try and change his game too much. I mean, he would try and solve certain things. I mean, the, you know, to get to go much further, he needed to really buckle down and, and be able to kind of play, you know, the kind of the, you know create space more slowly. If that, that's the way I would put it, I mean, he creates space very, very quickly. But you, you know, at a top level, you can't do that all the time. And you know, so you need to work it and build your rally and build the game. And that's something that he wasn't very good at. What did you say there, Martin? Create space more slowly. Well, I would, you know, yeah, yeah you know, so so that's what you know. Over a period of time, is that you're building your rally. You know, you're building your rally over you know, pretty much using using your length, using your, your anticipation, the volleys. You know, building building from back run pretty much yeah. backhand ball usually and at least certainly with length and, build, and building that rally and and uh, that wasn't his strength his length and his width wasn't his you know and the height and his moving back to the tee like none of these things were really you know his strength and so he had to work on that kind of more I wouldn't say attritional but that more basic style of his of his game and that 
and uh, he realized there was a lot of work to do there. So, um, right. you know, he was, you know, at the college level, he could get away with, you know, being a little bit more exploratory with his, you know, opening gambits and then reading the game and then, and then attacking the, the ball. And so yeah. Yeah, he could get it up to quite a high level in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you must have been very proud uh, to have a skillman uh, on your roster on your, uh, amongst one of your players. Yeah, with, yeah, I mean, we had Benny Fisher a few years before that. He was also, uh, uh, he was Skillman Award and he was, you know, he was a successful player. And so, you know, we've had a couple of those guys. We've hit most of the, you know, the things that you want. You're, you know, a bunch of All-Americans with the most improved, with, um, uh, you know, won the doubles championships, got reached the final, got the number one. I mean, we've had a lot of different things. I mean, there's certainly no, no complaints about, you know, the, the kind of successes that we've had and, on the team and, and uh, it would would like to be acknowledged for the fact that we go about things in a very fair way. I think that's that's not acknowledged for some reason, but that's we certainly do that as something I impose, I, I impose upon the team and, and want them to appreciate and you know have integrity and and uh, you know play as fair as possible. And I'm very proud of the fact that we do that. Uh, you know, contrary to what the competitive instincts tell them, tell them a lot of the time. So you know, there's a lot of challenges in college squash, and, and certainly that's sure. one of the big. Right. Now, uh, recently, you you just took on uh, Rochester's winningest uh, player in history, uh, Mario Yanez Tapia, and um, he's now on board as your assistant coach. And obviously, he was a great player at Rochester. What led you uh, to bringing him on board as your your assistant? I I mean, it was just it was fairly natural. Uh, so our current assistant, he was actually, I mean, literally, well, current assistant two years ago, he was literally a rocket scientist. <laughs> this oh, oh, okay. <laughs> that um, might explain your, your, your great results. <laughs> yeah, <mate. laughs> uh, so, so he was, um, you know, so he had this day job, this very cool day job, and then he was helping out, helping out, uh, you know, after work. And I think he wanted to focus on his career more. <clears throat> and um, yeah. so the job opened up just at the right time for Mario. And he wanted to play PSA. Did he? Okay. That was his real goal. And, and, but also at the same time, he wanted to kind of create a career in the States, a coaching career in the States, and at least a coaching career for after he, he kind of played PSA. And, and uh, so, you know, it just kind of it fit. You know, we looked around and he had to look at different jobs. And, and I, just, you know, I just told him, I said, look, you know, this, this situation actually, as long as we can work it out where you can travel a little bit, then, you know, then this is going to work out for you. You got a place to train, and and you know, you got all the things that you need to be as successful as you could possibly be. And you know, with a little bit of compromise, obviously, but you know, as you're working. But um, you know, that was the idea, and it, and it seems to have, you know gone pretty well for him. It's gone well for us as a team, but it's gone pretty well for him. He just won his first five K event after being months on PSA tour. So you know, he'll 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 do well, and he's doing well, and he will do. Well, he's obvi- obviously he has uh, leadership skills. You don't really, we don't really think of uh, those things as squash players, but in, in a team environment, uh, obviously that's uh, something that uh, that you'd want. Yeah, I mean, he's, I, you know, I, I mean, maybe not a natural leader, uh, but, but maybe I'm not either. You know, you kind of learn these things as as you go along, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, some people do possess these kind of things naturally. Rio C was actually a natural leader. Uh, Mario probably not something that he's grown into, and and uh, so but he's certainly getting better at it. I mean, you need to, to have that. You need to be able to, you know, make good decisions and and uh, you know and lead the team in the right way. So you know he's certainly grown into that very well. 
Yeah. Now, uh, finally, Martin, I just want to first, uh, as a Canadian, I want to uh, welcome you to uh, Canada. Congratulations on uh, the, the becoming the high performance uh, director. And, uh, it seems, uh, I think you had a, it might be a similar role uh, in Scotland a few years back. Um, what, the, what exactly uh, does your new role entail? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different things. If you look at the job description, it's, uh, you know, it's a thousand different things. But, I mean, re realistically, you know, you have to reduce these things down to, you know, the, the main things. And, and the main things, as far as I can see, is you want to make the current crop of players as, as successful as possible, make them all reach the potential, uh, which is good for the country, obviously, and, and uh, you know, and get the team, get the team as, as successful as possible. And obviously, you're going to, negotiate the criteria for success and funding with the, you know, the various committees that you're going to be talking to. But the main thing is obviously making them better. Yeah. Uh, and then to set the stage for, for those younger players, the players that are currently in juniors and the, in college and transitioning and, and for those, you know, guys and girls coming up to, to be the next, uh, to be the next person, give them the right information and put together the right structure that, you know, allows them to be successful. Um, so that was that was something that I that was how I entered into the, the Scottish situation was you know I thought that I was going to be it was you know it was perfect for me it was like you know I could get back to the country that I you know I, I came from and and uh, it just kind of stalled a little bit in, in a couple of different ways it stalled in terms of you know the information I was going to be able to give them and and design it in a certain way and uh, so you know the things that I learned from that. You know, now I'm going to be the guy that's going to be doing that. There's not going to be any right. barriers. So, so that's that's going to be very helpful. And so this is it. Yeah, this is this is my opportunity to be able to kind of design uh, the program and the way that I want. And and you know, and really, it's an unbridled uh, kind of access to to you know helping the players as much as possible. So I'm I'm excited, very excited. Yeah, about I'm excited too. Um, it's sort of I was thinking about this earlier. It's sort of I guess it's not quite the same, but you know, you you see, um, for example, South Korea brings in Goose Hiddink to coach the the national team, or uh, uh, you know, the, they a country brings in a, a high, a very good coach to coach their their football national team, which is kind of similar uh, to that in a way. Right. I mean, I, I suppose. I mean, there's various ways you can do that. I suppose. I mean, there's. Um... Yeah, I mean, I mean you're, you not, you're, not, you're not there coaching per se, but you're you're actually involved at the highest level, making the making the decisions that need to be made in terms of bringing the top players to a, a higher level. Well, I mean that that's the job. So the job, yeah. I suppose, is administrative more than anything else. But at the same time, you know, you you want to be as effective as possible. And so, you know, if you're you know, if you get if someone like me gets too involved in in the processes and of a you know of making everything function, and you're not doing the thing that you're best at, which is you know, trying to make people better and setting the scene for making everything else better, then you kind of get lost a little bit. And so you have to focus on on what you're good at. And that's and that's kind of as I'm going through this process, and you know, you know, I'm still obviously picking up information about how this is going to work. But you yeah. know, that's really what. You to do you you kind of don't want to get sidetracked too much from how you can be most effective uh, so and i think that's probably you know that's that's probably an agreement as well you know it is well it is an agreement that they actually downgraded the not downgraded but they kind of split up the role that they had previously so so that that person in that role could focus more on 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 that stuff 
and then a bit more of the process and bureaucracy and, and uh, things like that can be dealt with in the office and and the and maybe the bit more interaction with the juniors could be dealt with with someone else right uh, so, so there's yeah it's it's uh you know it's a it's a smart move i think by by those guys by sports canada and in terms of making that decision to, to break up the role and so yeah i mean it's, it's, it's kind of it's, it's an it's exciting challenge for for you i think now i probably uh i mean you won't need uh, me to to paint this picture, but I will for the audience uh, in case they don't know. Uh, Canada currently has four women, which I think is uh, the first time ever in the top 50 in the world. And, but our men are sort of, uh, I don't think they've reached their potential. We've got, we're between 79 and 110. Uh, obviously working towards bringing those guys up to a certain level uh, is a priority. Right. I mean, the, I, you know, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's, it's obviously an exciting time because the women are doing great and, yeah. you know, they, they can do better, which is, uh, which is great. And so that's going to be fun to see how far we can go. And, uh, yeah, the guys, I mean, I mean, from my point of view, I mean, I, so I, I came to Toronto uh, however many years ago, 2000, 2001. I mean, that was pretty much when I started based myself in Toronto and, and, uh, you know, the, and one of the main reasons was because Jonathan Power, he was here, Graham Riding, Shahir Razik, uh, Victor Berg, well, there were a bunch of great players and we had pretty much carte blanche access to any club in town. You ever, have you ever played poker with Victor? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Too many times. Too many times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's another story. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um you know, so and obviously the success that those guys had. I mean, that was the environment I walked into, and then to see the guys at least not have the success that they that those guys had. I mean, I think Jonathan even extended his career a little bit just to secure the funding. I think he played for Canada just to secure the carding uh, for you know the number of uh, cards, which is the you know the way they get supported by Sport Canada. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think he extended his career to do that just to give the young guys the opportunity to of have this thing available to them mm. and then it's not quite working out so so it's a challenge i mean you can only work with the talent that you have uh, but you know i think there is talent there and uh, yeah. so yeah it's a challenge but i think obviously that's uh, something that you'd i certainly want to improve and, and uh, i think it's possible yeah i was really impressed uh with the women's final uh, danielle latorno she she's a good player she really played well as did uh, holly uh, in in the uh, in the final there but i um i had nick sackfee on the, the podcast uh, uh during the nationals and he mentioned uh, that he he would like to find somewhere to sort of take his game to the next level like playing uh like regularly in a in european leagues and things like that would is that something you would consider as an option in terms of setting these guys up with better uh a better playing, a better playing environment, more consistently at the top level. Um, is it something I would recommend to go to Europe and play leagues? Definitely. I mean, definitely. I think that's, uh, but not maybe for the reasons that you think. I think. I think it's just it's tough. I mean, it's it's tough. Yeah. You're, you're you're going around Europe on you know trains, planes, and automobiles, and in, in the darkness and the rain, and you know, and then you've and you're sort of. You know, that's pretty much your bread and butter in terms of you know how you're making your money and paying your rent and things like that and and uh, you know you maybe don't want to you know you just come back from a tournament from you know somewhere you know on the Sunday and and uh, then on the Wednesday you're playing a really tough match in let's say Dutch league or something like that uh, you know so you might not be completely prepared for it but 
uh, you have to do it. And so I think going through that process, you kind of toughen up and you're playing in suboptimal conditions and it helps you become a better competitor. It helps you know how to win under circumstances that you're, that, you know, where you haven't prepared perfectly. Yeah. So in terms of toughening you up and becoming a better competitor, the leagues are phenomenal. Uh, so I think for a certain amount of time, that's a good thing to do. Uh, as a long-term, you know, professional strategy, I don't, you know, I wouldn't say that's the case. I mean, you, you obviously got to take, you know, take all these things that you need to do. I mean, there's so many different aspects of the game that you need to uh, be good at and got to maximize your own personal strengths uh, so you can bring that as your competitive advantage. Uh, so, you know, you have to go back to the drawing board all the time and figure out what you need to work on and, you know, being tough, being competitive, learning how to play in conditions that are suboptimal. I mean, that that is the experience of a professional squash player. You're always going to be, you know, not quite feeling perfect. You're jet lagged. You're kind of like carrying a little niggle. You're just, it's a management process, right? Yeah. So, you know, so learning how to deal with that management and learn how to have the right attitude when things are not perfect is one of the big things that you have to do as a pro athlete and certainly as a pro squash player. Yeah. So, uh, so, so yes, short answer, long answer, long answer, short answer is yes. <laughs> Um, the, you know, I think there's other things that, that, you know, those guys need as well. I think, I think they need some, um, you know, they need some work. I mean, they need some work and mm. some, some fundamental aspects of the game as well. I mean, Nick, Nick's pretty good technically, actually. But, you know, if you see some of the other players, it's, yeah, there's some, there's some, you know, pretty basic technique and footwork and uh, that can actually help you. And yeah. so I think there's, there's you know, there's a few things that, that we can do, but can't give away my complete strategy yet because no, I don't no. know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, there, are, there are European leagues, obviously, and they're, they're well-storied. Uh, they've been around for years, but why not uh, North American League? I mean, why not? I mean, that's, that's something that, I mean, certainly I thought about. I mean, the, I'll tell you something. You, the US, US squash, uh, USSRA, is an incredibly progressive organization. Mm. Uh, Steen and Ben Wilkins have done an unbelievable job. Uh, of sort of connecting all these different parts of, of squash in the U.S. together. Um, I mean, I think if, if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be those guys, you know, and, and uh, well, they might not be the ones putting the lead together, but they will support the conditions or set the incentives to make that happen. And, yeah. and the fact that it hasn't happened yet is that I'm a little bit surprised about, but I think it's, um, I'd be surprised if it didn't happen at some point. I mean, you, you, could, you, could, you could have a team out of Toronto, Montreal, New York, Boston, uh, Different places like that. I mean, that that would be exciting. I think two I think teams so. out of New York. I mean, so I think you know what you're competing against is the, the college squash is is so much fun. I mean, in terms of watching college squash matches, I mean, especially the level that there is these days. I mean, that fulfills yeah. one, right? You know, and then there's so many other things connected to that as well. It's, you know, the institutions playing, people are alumni, they're you know they're invested for lots of different reasons as well as the squash has been great, and as well as the format being very cool as well. Um, you know, nine players playing and, you know, it's four all in the ninth game. It's, you know, it's pretty <laughs> ambitious. Yeah. But that, that's, you know, that's a spectacle. And, you know, I think College Squash is still on the way to promoting that in the way that it could be and should be promoted. Uh, but it will get there. Um, and then there's a lot of tournaments, a lot of PSA tournaments around. So, so leagues maybe, you know, I think there is a space for it in there in the market somewhere. I think it's, it's just got to find out what that is. You know, if you look at tennis, they've got the world team tennis and yeah. Davis Cup and, you know, there's a couple of other things out there. They don't have a kind of regular league structure. So, so I don't know whether the model will be, you know, 
copy in what's in, in Europe and the club structure because it was pretty much financed by the clubs, right? So, but that doesn't really exist in the States. It's colleges and it's schools and, you know, and then private clubs and whether those clubs want to actually do that. I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. So I think there is a format out there that could happen and, you know, in this kind of, you know, in this environment. But uh, I think, I think it could and it, it should happen. Yeah. Be great. I mean, imagine that. There's this oh, yeah. Of, you know, you got Ali Farag and uh, Amanda Sobi and, and uh, you know, whoever else, like, you know, maybe some, you know, to, uh, you know some other great players and, you know, male, female and, and uh, you know, maybe a college player, maybe a junior. I mean, there's, there's so many different things you can do. Uh, to, to maximize that but yeah well it seems like it's uh seems like it's fertile ground still i mean it, it, i think it is i mean it, it certainly i mean it seems in the states it, it certainly is incredibly fertile ground and and it's you know one of the few as well as eastern europe and russia maybe it's, it's one yeah. of the few countries the number of courts is still growing so um and it doesn't as long as that kind of you know the base of the pyramid which i think is is a, a you know, what drives that, I think, is college participation. And I think the number of colleges, you know, the varsity programs, I don't think it's going to be going down anytime soon. I think it's only going to keep on increasing. And that will increase the base of the pyramid and, and the number of juniors getting into the game and playing. They've obviously have to have access. That could be the next thing that comes up is, you know, how they're going to play. Uh, but I think it's growing. And I think that all these different kinds of opportunities will, will crop up. And, you know, so pros can base themselves there. And some of them do. I mean, some of them do base themselves in New York City and, or close by, yeah. uh, where they can make a bit of money coaching and still play. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that could, you know, rather than going to Europe, you know, you could do it all in North America, which, is, which is, would be great. Well, you have uh, you have uh, uh, your work cut out for you, Martin. But if anyone can do it, I think you can. Uh, really appreciated uh, the time that you gave to me today. We uh, after that technical uh, issue, uh, we had a great chat. Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. It's nice to nice to talk about things yeah. that I very rarely talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I could have kept going, uh, but I know it's been over an hour, and uh, just want to wish you and the Yellow Jackets all the best. Uh, in the upcoming season, and obviously uh, uh, Squash Canada, your new job with them, um, all the best with that. And I just want to also say thanks for the great years of squash back in the day. Uh, I enjoyed watching you play. Thanks, Jerry. That's great. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Martin. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, thanks again, Martin, for coming on to the podcast. That was fantastic. Uh, just want to wish you again uh, all the best with the University of Rochester Yellow Jackets and uh, in your new role as the head of uh, Elite, the Elite Squash Program for Squash Canada. And uh, also, it was fun. To, uh, it was really fun to relive those good old days. Uh, that era was fantastic. The squash was great. Uh, it was very competitive, very compelling, and Martin was a big part of it. So it was great to talk about those uh, those old days. And uh, many thanks for coming on again, Martin. Uh, now, uh, start to watch the the British Open finals. They'll be starting here in a few more minutes. So I hope you enjoy the finals as well. And I hope you're doing uh, okay with your squash. Uh, I played today, and then I finished my match. Uh, you know, I tried, I tried the beep test at the end of my match today. I got to, uh, unfortunately, only level 9. Um, and I took a two-minute break and did it again. Uh, a little bit disappointed, but um, you know, kind of tough to do after you've played. But I thought I 
could manage at least level 10. So I'm going to uh, push uh, on Thursday to get to level 10 at least and then uh, go forward from there. But anyways, uh, whatever you're doing with your squash, all the best with that. And uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, later this week, we have um, recently crowned Canadian men's national champion Andrew Schnell on the podcast. So really looking forward to that. And um, that'll be uh, a podcast you won't want to miss. Okay, everyone, thanks again for listening and have a great day. Goodbye now.